Good evening, church family. It's a great joy to end off the Lord's Day together with the family of God and trust that we're excited and expectant to God's Word this evening. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We're working our way again through this gospel and we're going quickly through it. Uh, and our focus this evening will be from verse uh, 1 to 26. Mark chapter 11, 1 to 26. This is God's word. Let us hear it uh, with his enablement. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage, i.e. the house of the unripe figs, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they came, when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said, answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be, found, will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. At least so far in the reading of God's word, may reform our lives 
to its truth. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, I'm just so thankful for your word. So thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through the scriptures and that again and again and again they prove to be uh, the living word, uh, that they speak into our hearts, into our situations, that they confront us. And even this evening, dear Lord, as I've had to wrestle with this text, I pray that you'd allow us to wrestle with this text, that we would uh, hear as from you this evening, uh, that you would challenge us, encourage us, but above all, that you would fashion and form us into a people that are pleasing in your sight, a people delightful in your eyes, a people that you see fit to bless as a result. And so we pray, help us, even this evening. Help us to come to you and your word with all our brokenness, all our failures, all our sin. And help us to, to look for and long after your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. It's been called the invisible evil that only God sees. It's been described as the most defiling of all sins. It defiles grace. It defiles prayer. It defiles worship. It defiles every good work. It's the sin, if you see the Scriptures, it's the sin that Jesus despised the most, exposed the most, and attacked the most. What sin am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the sin of hypocrisy. That devilish deception that puts up a mask, that play acts, that, that puts up appearances for all to see, an appearance that goes contrary to who we actually are. Uh, quite appropriately, Thomas Brooks described hypocrisy as a cloud without rain, a star without light, and a tree without fruit. Dear friends, if I may share with you quite personally this evening, this is the sin that I've become more and more concerned about and fearful of. And the reason is quite simple. It's because it's so easy. It's so easy to stand up and preach God's Word and tell you all these things that God says and fail in so many different ways. I shared to our small group recently uh, that every pastor, whether he admits it or not, is a hypocrite. Every pastor. Why? Because every single pastor, if he's faithful to the Scriptures, is expounding things that are way beyond him, way above him, things that, that he fails in repeatedly. And my concern is, my fear is, the question that, that bothers me is my hypocrisy incidental or essential? Is it, is it something I struggle with and overcome? Or is it something that I'm, I'm, I'm naturally part of, that's naturally part of me? And, and dare I challenge you, the question that, you, that needs to bother you is, is your hypocrisy incidental or essential? It, it's not just easy for me as a, a pastor and preacher. Let me dare say it's easy for you. It's easy for you to come into this building and sing songs to God, yet go home and not speak to God at all and not think about Him through the week. 
It's easy for us to come in here into the church and profess godliness, yet in the home, godliness is nowhere to be seen. Not just in the fact that we don't think about God or pray to God, but the fact that we lie and we fight and we have fits of anger and rage. It's easy to go out into this world and to decry all the evil we see and completely miss the evil in our own hearts and the failures that we have. Realize it's easy, it's dangerously easy to be a Christian in the church, a practical atheist in the home, and a devil in the heart. And so the question you and I need to wrestle with, the question that that I wrestle with, is this, as Jesus examines your heart this evening, as Jesus looks into your family life, as Jesus weighs up us as a church, what does he see? What does he find? Now, I can ask that question, and in a sense, I must ask that question, because that's the picture we have of Jesus in this passage. Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem, the the city of God, right? He he comes to the temple, which is the center of religious worship, the center of Yahweh worship. And and he comes and he expects it, and what does he see? He sees that it's like a fig tree that's full of leaves. It has signs of life, but it's all a show. It's all deceptive. There's no fruit. And dear church, if Jesus had to arrive here this evening, if he had to walk through those doors, if he had to walk through our service and observe all our religious performance and liveliness, would he find fruit or would he find hypocrisy? I've been challenged and I like that juxtaposition between fruitfulness and hypocrisy in our text. As I've thought through it and read, I've seen this make sense. Think of Matthew 6, 20. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruit. Who's the them? It's, it's the false teachers, the hypocrites. People who are in sheep's clothing, but inwardly the ravenous wolves. And Jesus says, you spot them by their fruit. And so therefore, you need to examine their fruit. We need to examine our fruit. Because hypocrisy is so easy, we would do well to examine our fruit so that by God's grace we can recognize our hypocrisy and repent of it. Now before we look at the particular fruit that Jesus wants, uh, let's walk our way through this text and and look at how all I'm saying actually comes from the text. And, and there's three things I want you to see as we consider this passage. And the first one is this, a, in verse 1 to 11, I want you to see a confronting king. A, a confronting king. After his long and winding journey towards Jerusalem, Jesus finally arrives, right? And he arrives in a very particular and spectacular way. Uh, throughout his ministry, if you've read the gospel up to this point, you know that Jesus has been quite secretive. He, he's been quite, uh, he's kept everything under wraps about who he is and his identity. Yet now, all of a sudden, quite boldly and quite publicly, he declares that he's the Messiah. 
And how does he do that? Well, he sends his disciples, he gets a donkey, he gets a colt, and he draws it, he brings it to himself, and he enters into Jerusalem on this. Now, we would know if we studied the Scriptures, and the Jews would have known that this is a, a reenactment of the prophecy in, in Zechariah 9. Uh, verse 9 to 10. In that prophecy, the Messiah comes to the people in Jerusalem and they come, he comes to their rejoicing and he comes seated on a donkey, on a colt, on a fowl of a donkey. And, and so contrary to what some commentators think, the Jews clearly would have understood this Messianic connection because not only do they throw their cloaks on the ground, which is the way you pay homage to a king, you see that in first, Second Kings 9.13, but they also shout out Psalm 80, 118, verse 24, 25 and 26. They shout out to him, Hosanna, which is save us, right? That's what it means, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the, the Jews very clearly, I believe, understand that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. As one commentator says, Jesus' actions here are a blatant messianic self-advertisement. He's deliberately orchestrating this entire entrance. And the question is, why? In fact, that's the question of verse 3. Why are you doing this? That's the question we need to ask. Why is Jesus doing this? Uh, commentators give their opinions, uh, uh, yours and mine. Uh, Jesus comes boldly, I think, because he comes to confront. He, he comes firstly to, to confront the Pharisees. Uh, he comes to confront the Pharisees by claiming to be the Messiah, by claiming to have authority. He immediately sets himself over and against these Pharisees. In, in the other Gospels, we see that as he enters, they are indignant, they are envious of him because he gets this reception. See, Jesus, by enacting this messianic prophecy, is, is adding fuel to the fire. They already want him dead, and he's deepening the tension with the Pharisees. And remember, he's already predicted three times that he's going to die at the hands of the religious leaders, and this action is one step closer to that end. And so he, he confronts the Pharisees. But, but secondly, he, he even confronts the Jews. Uh, the Jews in Jesus' day conformed or transformed the, uh, or fashioned the Messiah after their own image. They wanted a, a nationalistic, political Messiah who, who doesn't necessarily save from sins, but he, he saves them from the Gentiles, from foreign rule. And you see this in verse 10. They add to Psalm 118, they add this idea, blessed is the one who come, or blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Uh, that phrase, of our father David, is actually quite odd. It has this connotation of, of nationalistic expectation. Uh, you see a similar thing in, in the pseudographical writings, in, uh, written about the same time in, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 17. You see this picture of this mighty, victorious David who gets rid of those nasty Gentiles. And that's the expectation that they had of the Messiah. Yet this expectation goes quite contrary to the image of a Messiah on a donkey, which Zacharias says is a picture of humility. Yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he's the king. But we know he's the king who makes the cross his throne. He is the king whose crown is a wreath of thorns, whose kingdom starts with his death. 
And so he even confronts their ideas, their expectations of the Messiah. But perhaps more than that, Jesus comes to confront the temple. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem actually ends with a bit of an anticlimax. Verse 11 is a bit of a downer, don't you think? He enters Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple, looks around and goes back to Bethany. Quite anticlimactic. And, and the picture that Mark paints is this. Jesus' ent entrance is actually focused on the temple. He is coming to the temple. He's examining the temple. Why? Because the very next day, he's going to confront it. He's going to be more than just cleansing the temple. He, he's going to confront it. He is going to confront it for its lack of fruit. And so when Mark ties this idea of, of Jesus' entrance as the Messiah together with his confrontation of the temple, we actually see that Mark is pointing out another expectation of the Messiah. Now, we don't have time to read them all now, but if you read Ezekiel 37 and Zechariah 6 and Malachi 3, you'll see that one expectation of the Messiah was that he would not only purify the temple, but establish a new temple. He would do away with the old. Why? Because that temple had become a den of robbers. We'll look at that in a moment. But the point is this. Jesus enters Jerusalem and he's set on confronting the temple. Yes, he is the coming Messianic king. He's a humble king, a blessed king, a king worthy of praise. Yet he's a king who comes as the Lord who confronts his people. I think of the parable of the talents, how the master goes away, he leaves talents in the hands of his servants, and he comes back and he holds them accountable. That's the idea here. The king has returned and he's coming to his people and he's coming as the Lord who confronts. And the application for us this evening, I think, is, is quite simple, this is the king that you and I need to deal with. This is the king who comes to confront us. As with the Pharisees, he's a king who challenges our authority. And, and the question you need to ask, who is Lord? Is he Lord or are you Lord? Who dictates your life, him or you? Who's, who, who, who guides your choices, your decisions? Is, is it him, his word, his will or, or yours? Or, or as with the, the Jews, he is a king who confronts your expectations. It's easy for us to, to fashion him in our image. We, we want him to serve us. We want him to fulfill our dreams, our desires. And the question is, who's serving who here? Or as with the temple, Jesus is a king who challenges our worship. As we come to worship, who is front and center? Why are you here? Are you here for him? Are you here for something else? Are you here for yourself? See, we love the idea of Jesus as Savior. We, we love that. We rejoice in it. He's compassionate and kind and generous. He's loving. But we must never forget the fact that he's also our Lord. The Lord to whom we will have to give an account. One day you will have to face the music. You know that phrase, face the music? I found out that there's a story behind it. Apparently there was this man who, who wanted to be in an orchestra and he couldn't play an instrument. He couldn't play a note. He, he couldn't even read music. Sounds a little bit like me. But unlike me, he was wealthy and influential and he forced his way into an orchestra. 
and the conductor led him in. And for two years, he had the flute and he could play the flute and he acted, all, acted the, the play or whatever. Yet after two years, a new conductor came in and interviewed everyone. And this guy put it off and put it off until eventually that's where the phrase came. He had to face the music. Uh, dear friends, every single one of us will have to face the music to whether or not we've played the flute where we've actually worshipped God. And so that's the first thing I want you to see this evening, uh, uh, the confronting thing, a king, a, a confronting king in verse 1 to 11. Uh, the, the second thing I want you to see is a cursed temple. Uh, Mark, as he often does, he uses this sandwich technique, right? He, he tells one story by telling another story on either ends, and, and both stories are told so that you'd interpret them together. And so the cursing and the withering of this tree is meant to help us interpret Jesus confronting this temple. Look at verse 13. He is on his way to Jerusalem. He, he sees this fig tree in leaf. And even though it's not the season for, for figs, by being in full leaf, it creates an expectation. Even if unripe, this tree should have some evidence of figs. But this leafy tree with this promise of fruit proves deceptive. And now contrary to what liberal commentators think, Jesus isn't acting irrational here. He's not being uh, indignant to this tree because he was hangry. No, he's, this is a destructive miracle of, of him cursing this, this, this tree, and it's an, an act out at play or an, an, an acted out play parable. It's a symbolic picture of, of the temple. Just like the fig tree, the temple is, is full of leaves. It's full of signs of life and, and busyness. It's active. But when you come close, there's, there's no fruit. And, and the question to ask is, what exactly is the problem with the temple? Why is this, this temple, in Christ's eyes, lacking fruit? Well, after chasing out the moneylenders and, and sellers in verse 15 to 16, he gives us two answers in verse 17. Look at verse 17. The first reason he actually gives is, is those in the temple weren't seeking God's heart. They weren't seeking God's heart. That is, they were pursuing that which wasn't pleasing to God. He quotes from Isaiah 56 verse 7, uh, saying, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Uh, if you read the rest of Isaiah 56, you see that God's heart is to have the Gentiles to come in, to, to join themselves to Him in worship, to have the nations hold fast to Him in, in prayer and service. Yet what do you see in the temple? It's busy and overrun, not by Gentiles, but by business. See, sellers and, and money changers who typically ran their business outside the temple were allowed to, to run it inside the temple. And where exactly? A commentator said the, the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were allowed. And so what we see then is, is that the religious leaders who over, overlooked or managed the temple were allowing vendors in the temple and by implication, implication were robbing Gentiles of the joy of worshiping God, but they were even robbing God of having the nations worship Him. Truly this is a place filled with robbers. They've robbed God of worship. But, but secondly... Uh, 
The second problem is those in the temple weren't only seek, weren't seeking God's heart, but they weren't seeking God with their hearts. Uh, Jesus not only quotes from Isaiah 56, 7, but when he says it is, you've made it into a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah 7, 11. I realize the den of robbers is the place where thieves run to hide. And that's exactly what the Jews did in, in, in Jeremiah's day. They, they committed sins. They, they stole. They lied. They murdered. They, they committed injustice. They oppressed the foreigners. They, they oppressed the weak, the destitute. They even committed adultery. Yet despite all of this, they thought they could hide the unrighteousness in temple worship. And they thought that they could, could still enjoy God's blessings by just keeping themselves busy with religious performance. And the message of Jeremiah 7 is essentially this. God says, not on your life. Don't believe that lie. In fact, God says, because you turn to me in worship without your heart, I will turn this temple over to destruction. And we know that's what God does. Or did. I realize that this is the same problem in Jesus' day. Just like in Jeremiah's day, the Pharisees have, have, have been a people who have turned to God without their hearts. These people involved in this business, they're worshiping God not from the heart. No, they've come hiding their self-righteousness in temple worship. They've come hiding their, their sin with religious performance. And to give you a clue of how far their hearts are from God, verse 18 says, the Pharisees respond to Jesus and they are indignant. They want to destroy him. These are not the people who, who care for God's word. These are not the people who care for the worship of God. No, they only care for themselves, their position, their honor. And so like Israel of old, there are people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And that's why Jesus confronts this temple. That's why Mark would have us know Jesus actually comes to do far more than just cleanse it. He comes to curse this temple. This temple will eventually, even in Mark 13, 2, Jesus says, be destroyed. See, like the fig tree, it looks alive, but there's no heart and there's no fruit. Uh, James Edwards sums it up well. I think he says, the leafy fig tree with all its promise of fruit is, a deceptive, is as deceptive as the temple, which despite the religious commerce and activity is really an outlaw's hideaway. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment on the temple. And so, dear friends, the application for us is, is twofold at least. God wants your heart. Right, we know that, right? We, he, he wants more than just your religious performance. He wants more than just the outward displays of, of godliness that you put on display for everyone to see. He, he wants more than just lip service. No, He wants your heart. This evening, He wants your heart. He, he wants all of who you are. He's called you to love you, Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. He wants our hearts from Proverbs 23, 26. God says, my son, give me your heart. He gives this assurance in, in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And dear friends, the question for us is, are you seeking God with all your heart or only a half of your heart? 
a quarter of your, your heart that is given to him on a Sunday. Realize to seek God with all your heart, the heart is the center of who you are. And by seeking him with all your heart, it's to, to seek him above all else as the center of who you need to be. Is that how we approach God? Do we, do we want Him? Do we give all of ourselves to Him? Are we seeking Him with all our hearts? But, but also recognize the other application is not only does he, he want our hearts, but He wants our hearts because He hates hypocrisy. Uh, the prototypical hypocrites in the, New, in the New Testament are the Pharisees, you know this. In Matthew 23, seven times Jesus pronounces a woe on them, condemnation of them, and six of the seven is tied to them being hypocrites. The point is Jesus despises hypocrisy. Uh, listen to, to Proverbs 11.20. This is a verse that should bother you. It, it bothers me. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are His delight. Now, now when you hear that word abomination, you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of serious sins, right? Homosexuality, rape, incest, murder. Those are abominations. But we don't think of hypocrisy that way. But we should, because in God's eyes, this is a perverse evil. In fact, repeatedly in Proverbs, we are told that God despises and opposes the hypocrite. You see that in chapter 3, 23, 10, 12, and onwards, it's on the screen. And so, dear friends, the implication is this. Whatever we may be, let's not be hypocrites. Yes, at times our, our faith waxes and wanes. Yes, at times our hope rises and falls. Yes, at times our, our love grows cold and hot. But let those at least be real. Let our faith and our hope and our love be genuine. Let it all be sincere and not just a facade. Not just things you do because you think, well, God will, will distract God, but inwardly in your heart, there's no true faith, no love, or no hope. Now, wherever else we be, let's not be hypocrites. Let the cursing of the, the, the fig tree and the temple warn us. So far, we've seen in the confronting king and the cursed temple. In the third and final place, verse 22 to 26, notice with me the fruitful church. In verse 21, after Peter sees that the fig tree has withered, uh, Jesus does something quite seemingly strange. Instead of teaching on the fig tree and explaining what it all means, he brings up and teaches upon three topics, namely faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Unfortunately, many think Mark here is just adding to the narrative. He's haphazardly just introducing these ideas into the text Yet I argue, despite all of this, despite how it seems, he's actually still relating to, this, to the temple. He's still speaking about it. See, three things are vital in the true worship of God, in the temple at least. You had to enter with faith in God. That He's your God, that you know Him, that you worship Him, that you come to pray to Him, and that you seek forgiveness from Him. See, all of these three things are, are vital for the true worship of God. Yet here is Jesus. After cursing the temple, Jesus relocates the, the true worship of God away from a place to a people. 
Who are those people? It's his disciples. It's those united to him in faith. Now, if you carefully read uh, Mark 12, 10, Mark 13, 2, Mark 15, 38, you'll see that the temple is essentially and fundamentally replaced by Jesus. See, the temple is only a shadow that points to him, and when he arrives, the shadow passes away. You see that in Colossians 2, 19, Hebrews 8, 5, Hebrews 10, 1. And realize the, the life and death and resurrection is, brings about and signals the end of the temple. Yes, in the temple you could go to, to have your sins partially forgiven. But realize now in Jesus at the cross, the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, He gives us full and final forgiveness. A once for all sacrifice. Yes, in the temple, you could go to be instructed by the law in the ways of righteousness. But now in Jesus, the one who lived a life in perfect obedience, the one who kept the law, in him you are clothed with the robes of righteousness. Yes, in the temple, you could go to to find God's presence and worship him. But now in the resurrected Jesus, those who are forgiven and made acceptable, they are filled by the Spirit with the presence of God. See, not only is Jesus the, the better temple, Matthew 12, 6, and not only does His life and death and resurrection nullify the temple, but, but those united to Him, they now become the true temple of God. Isn't that what the New Testament repeatedly says? We, as the church, are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16, and Ephesians 2.21. It says, the true worship of God is now not to be found in, in one place alone, but to be found in the people of God, the people united to God through Christ. That's you if you're in Christ. You are the temple of God. You get to enjoy God's presence. You're forgiven of God. You get to know God. What a joy, what a privilege is yours. Yet the point of this entire narrative seems to be this. As the true temple, as the people who now enjoy God's presence and God's forgiveness, as his temple, you are called to be fruitful. You are called to be more than just a leafy tree, but a fruitful tree. Now, what are those, those fruit? Well, it's the three things he mentions. Jesus wants faith over fanfare. Unlike the crowds who, who were often fickle and, and were caught up with the, with the fanfare of Jesus being around who, who wanted things from him, unlike the crowds who, who wanted the Messiah after their own image, Jesus desires the fruit of faith. Faith that boldly, without doubt, thoroughly yields itself to God. When Jesus speaks of faith that moves mountains, uh, that doesn't mean he's calling us to the landscaping business. It doesn't mean he's calling us to health, wealth, and prosperity. No, he's calling us to a radical dependence upon God, a, a, a faith that so trusts God even in the most insurmountable situations. 
Even with the most difficult, the, the severe difficulties we face, we are called to radically trust Him. Uh, Matthew Henry's comment is worthy of quotation. It is by faith that the world is conquered, by faith that Satan's fiery darts are quenched, a soul is crucified with Christ and it lives, and by faith we set the Lord always before us and see Him that is invisible and have made Him present to our minds. Realize, this is no half-hearted, hypocritical faith. No, no, this is a wholehearted faith that depends upon God. But that's not all. Jesus also wants prayer over prophets. Unlike the Pharisees and those in the temple who drowned out the prayer for the nations for the sake of seeking prophet, Jesus delights in prayer. He delights in prayer as, as, as fruit that, that sees him as, as most valuable. True faith in God reveals itself in prayer. Instead of forsaking God or using God to make a profit, to get something else out of God, the true faithful believer seeks God in prayer as the greatest portion, as the greatest joy. And note, if faith in God means a life of trust, and if faith works itself out in prayer, then Jesus is calling us here to a life of daily prayer, a life of prayer that stands in contrast to the once-off whimperings of a hypocrite who only wants God when things get tough, who only wants God out of wants and not out of necessities. Again, I love this quote by Warren Risby. He says, prayer is not an emergency measure that we turn to when we have a problem. That's how we often pray, and sometimes it's okay to pray like that. It's good to pray like that, but that's not all our prayer must be. And for the hypocrite, that's all that prayer is. It's problem-solving. Now, Wearsby says, real prayer is part of our constant communion with God and worship of God. See, that's the fruit he wants. He wants a people who trust him and who look to him, who live a life in communion with him. But again, that's not all. Jesus also wants forgiveness over fear. It's interesting, in verse 18, we see that the Pharisees feared Jesus, and we're told why they feared him, because they viewed Jesus as a threat. The, the crowds were going after him. Now, that's a telling description of a hypocrite, actually. Instead of seeking the good of others, a hypocrite sees others as a threat, a threat to their own good, their own welfare. Thomas Brooks says it this way, self-ends are the operative ingredients in all the hypocrite does. Self is the chief engine. Self is the great wheel that sets all all of the hypocrite's wheels in motion. When hypocrites take up religion, it is only to serve their own terms. Now, in contrast to that, Jesus looks for worshipers who actually seek the good of others. Instead of seeing others with fear as a threat, they show grace, they reconcile, they forgive. Realize a heart that has faith will not only pray, but as Galatians 5, 6 says, it will work itself out in love, love that forgives. 
See, without this forgiving spirit, all our faith and all our prayer is empty facade. In fact, we would, we would even say, if we look at this entire passage, uh, this kind of uh, prayer for forgiveness, this forgiving spirit should even include the nations. We should desire the nations to find forgiveness, to, to come to God, to join themselves to Him. See, Jesus is looking for the fruit of actually caring for others, of showing forgiveness, of seeking good, something the hypocrite knows nothing of. And so, again, the question we must ask is, are these the fruit that Jesus will find in our lives? Are these fruit evident in me and in you? In a sense, I know it's easy to confess faith, right? We've all done that. We confess faith in Jesus. It's easy to, to pray publicly because that's great. You, people are listening to you, and you can even exalt yourself that way. And it's easy to even to say you forgive others and be the bigger man. It's easy to be a leafy tree. It's easy to put up the appearance of fruit. But may I suggest to you, it's difficult to have these kind of fruits. It's difficult to, to have this kind of faith that scares mountains because you trust God. That regardless of what you face, regardless of what you lose, your hope, and your refuge is God. It's, it's difficult to have this kind of faith that prays not out of want to get something from God, but prays out of need and out of joy and desire. It's, it's difficult to have this kind of forgiving spirit that, that is willing to sacrifice to forgive, to, to overlook offenses. It's difficult to have, really have these kind of fruits especially for a hypocrite devoid of grace. I may suggest to you when God's grace takes hold of us, when the gospel of grace germinates in our hearts, then these are the fruit that, that I almost want to say will naturally appear. When you think of how God has loved you, how He has given His eternal Son for you, why wouldn't you trust Him? Why wouldn't you put your faith in Him? If He's given you everything in His Son, why not give Him everything in faith? When you think of how God has, has given you every blessing, forgiveness, acceptance, adoption into the family of God, that you now can be His temple who enjoys His presence, why wouldn't you pray to Him? Why wouldn't you seek Him daily, boldly? When you think of, of how God has forgiven you, your many, many sins, even your sins of hypocrisy, your lying, your thieving, your stealing, your anger, your rage. When you think of how He has forgiven you in your sin, how would you not forgive others? How would you not show grace? See, the cure of hypocrisy is to go again to the gospel, to go again to the grace of God, it's to go again to Jesus Christ, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to go with him with this prayer, this prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me to the way of everlasting. Dear friends, that should be our prayer this evening. 
But we go to our gracious God asking Him to, to examine us now, to show us our sin now. And not only when He comes. Because then it's too late. Now let us yield ourselves to Him now so that we would be a pleasing people in His sight, free of this invisible evil called hypocrisy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask you this evening that you'd have mercy upon us. We, we want to thank you for your word and thank you for the, the boldness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the way he clearly confronts hypocrisy, how he clearly confronts false religion, and how this passage has been recorded for our good. And we do plead with you this evening again to, to apply this to us so that we would learn from this that we would be rid of, rid of this, this, this evil, this, this perverse sin that is an abomination to your eyes. Help us to rather, by your grace, be men and women of integrity, sincerity, men and women whose heart is yielded to you in faith, whose life is characterized by, by prayer, intimate communion with you, and a people who forgive, a people who show grace, because you have shown grace to us. And so we do pray, dear Lord, help us, give us grace in this, challenge all of us with this evil, but free us also from this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.